My name is Rob and I'm an alcoholic. This virtual sponsorship series will be an exhaustive study of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My intentions are to go through each chapter paragraph by paragraph. Um, the format will be, I will read the paragraph and do a small discussion on it and then move forward. My hopes for this series is um, to help people who you know, may find themselves uh, sponsorless um, and looking for some sort of guidance um, and navigating the, uh, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, or even for the people who have been sober a while and have some experience um, with, with the text and um, are maybe just stagnant and in hope of uh, you know, getting some, some new information to uh, increase their own own uh, understanding and um, also uh, to improve their their uh, sponsorship journey. So we'll start um, with the doctor's opinion. We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction, gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. So it should be noted that when Dr. Silkworth gave them this letter, the big book had not been written yet, um, and Alcoholics Anonymous was not a official thing. Um, so when these when these recovering alcoholics very early on wanted to do their their twelve step work and go into sanitariums and hospitals to help the still sick and suffering alcoholic, they needed some sort of credentials to get through the front door. Many of these people had been patients at these hospitals, um, deemed hopeless. By, by the staff there, and now all of a sudden they come knocking all fresh-faced and bushy-tailed and say, hey, I got a cure for your patients. Let me in to talk to them. If it wasn't for a reliable doctor signing off on what they had to say, they never would have gotten through the door, thus never been able to recruit more people into recovery, and AA would not have taken off the way it has. To whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of the type I had come to regard as hopeless. So first he makes his qualifications that he's a doctor that specializes in this, in this type of business, and then goes on to talk about, in reference to uh, Bill W., who later on founded AA and wrote the big books. Um, and at the time, he regarded him as hopeless because back then, in the 1930s, there was no sort of treatment for alcoholics. And um, after a certain point, they were basically just doomed to a slow death by alcohol.
In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery as part of his rehabilitation. He commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that we must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. So obviously, this is the beginning of the step 12 work um, before the steps were even formally written. Um, and uh, the fellowship is, is basically the birth of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and the first 100 people that the kind of reference to here in this paragraph were actually responsible for the writing of the big book. So it was Bill W. putting the pen to the paper, but uh, it was the first 100 members of Alcoholics Anonymous that were involved in editing it and deciding what, what made it into the, the final manuscript and, and what was uh, left out. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group, they may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Very truly yours, William D. Silkworth, MD. So first and foremost, I would like to discuss this idea of other methods that have failed completely with these alcoholics. Um, some of the, the other methods I think we use today would be your traditional talk therapy, you know, like moral behavior education, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, some people try geographical change, thinking that if they got out of their environment, that the uh, their problems would just magically disappear. Um, there's scores of treatment centers and detoxes, um, you know, that you do a little 30-day stint in, and then it's back out with more of the same behavior afterwards. Um, and you can add to this list on and on, but none of them seem to work with us, especially those um, of the chronic variety, the ones that have been in and out of treatment centers in the past and, and can never seem to quite stay sober. He also goes on to say, he may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. Um, and what that means is, you know, it's a new age in, in, this, in the treatment of this disease. Um, you know, before, before they came up with this spiritual solution in Alcoholics Anonymous, their success rate was very, very low. And people were kind of just doomed to go in and out of, of these hospitals and sanitariums until they eventually got wet brain or died from complications directly due to their alcoholism. So, you know, with, with this new program of action came hope for the very first time for countless men and women out there who suffer from alcoholism. The physician who, at our request, gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind.
It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. As far as the medical community is concerned, it's this physical component that the text is talking about here that is the criteria for alcoholism to be categorized as a disease rather than just a mental illness. Many of the symptoms of alcoholism do lie within our mind and uh, it definitely can be looked at as a mental illness. However, this, this physical component is of vital importance. There is a neurological factor involved and the research um, that they're doing today is, is starting to catch up with what Alcoholics Anonymous and Dr. Silkworth have been saying all along. Uh, the brain of a alcoholic um, reacts differently to alcohol and drugs than a normal person's brain um, would. The release of dopamine causes um, the chains in the neural pathways to get stronger and uh, therefore more likely to repeat. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As layman, our opinion as it soundness may of course mean little, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. So when I hear the word allergy, I automatically think of something like a peanut allergy, um, where you have uh, hives that come up all over your skin and you start to swell up, your throat will swell, you go into anaphylactic shock, and without some adrenaline, you know, you'll suffocate and die. With alcohol, obviously, that's not the case. However, just like the anaphylactic shock is an abnormal reaction to the peanut, the abnormal reaction they're talking about with alcohol is the inability to stop drinking it once we've started. The average person eats a peanut and they think to themselves, hey, that's a delicious snack. The average person drinks alcohol, their inhibitions are lowered for a short period of time, they might have a drink or two, and then go on with their life. But this isn't so with the alcoholic. You know, how many times have we said to ourselves or to a friend, let's just stop at the bar for a drink, and next thing you know, it's two o'clock in the morning, and the bar's closing down, and you've had God only knows how much to drink. Or when trying to put it down and stay away from it, you say, just one more time before I quit tomorrow. And then we get going and it just never stops. So this allergy is a very important factor in alcoholism. We have a body that cannot process alcohol. 
Though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. On rare occasions, people will come into AA and detox themselves on their own and stay sober in the process. However, it is extremely dangerous and very rare that people can do that. Alcohol withdrawal can cause seizures and lead to death. So it is best done in a hospital environment under the care of professionals. Once a person who is seeking recovery is detoxed and the physical symptoms of their withdrawal are passed, that's when we can come in an AA and start to work on that spiritual solution and altruistic, which is to help other people to be of service. You know, once, once we get those working, once your, your, your head is clear and you're no longer shaking, that's when we can start to see some results. The doctor writes, the subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years experience as a medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was therefore a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. So now we're back to the writings of Dr. Silkworth. And once again, he makes his qualifications that he's a you know, a professional in this, in this industry and therefore qualified to speak on the subject. Um, and the other thing I want to point out is he refers to the subject that is uh, covered in masterly detail in the following pages. Uh, so at this point, uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous has been written um, and it's on the printing press ready to be uh, published and distributed out to, across the country. So the first letter that he gave them that we went over before was, was right at the beginning when, when they first started getting sober. And then seven years later, AA has really taken off now. They, they write this book and um, right before they put it out to the public, they gave Dr. Silkworth a copy of it, which he then read. And um, he was so impressed by what he had read that he wrote them this, this letter and gave it to them. And right as they were about to print the book, they made a last minute addition and added the letter to the big book, um, which is why it's in Roman numerals in the beginning rather than page numbers, because the, the pages were all, were all already set up and ready to go when you received this letter. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital, and while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. 
Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here, and with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. So in this first paragraph, what he's saying is that alcoholics need to be taught about morals. And being though that they are doctors, which are primarily science-driven individuals, uh, this, this idea of like moral teaching lies outside of their expertise. And so this is basically just a fancy way of saying they have no idea what to do with us. So then Bill W. gets locked up in the psych ward for his drinking for the third time, and he's under the care of Dr. Silkworth. And uh, this, is, this is where he gets his idea that he needs to share the solution that Ebby Thatcher uh, shared with him before going into treatment with other patients. Um, and we'll, we'll read more about that in the next video in Bill's story. However, um, you know, I love how they say that they consented to let him tell his story to the other patients with some misgiving. Um, because at this point in time, uh, nobody had ever seen anything like this happen before where, where somebody who's this hopeless alcoholic is uh, actually on the straight and narrow for real and recovering. So they kind of thought he was trying to get over on them. Um, they obviously didn't trust him very much, but luckily the he realized he was being serious and, and let him share the message with others. The other thing that should be noted is the entire absence of profit motive. That was a big discussion early on in AA, was whether or not to monetize the solution that, that he had found in the 12 steps. And luckily, somebody had the sense to uh, oppose the motion to monetize it and create a facility that would um, that people could pay to go to and, and get this this 12-step education um, because I think in the long run if they had monetized it it would be sufficiently less uh, effective you know um, alcoholics when they're coming in are distrustful to begin with um, so the the prospect of being like hey I got your you a solution uh, for five easy payments of ninety nine ninety nine, come on in. You know, uh, they, they would probably uh, hit hit the dust before they even made the journey. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, 
their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Once again here, the doctor reiterates how important it is to be properly detoxed from alcohol. And then it goes on to talk about the allergy again. And this time they're referring to the abnormal reaction that the allergy is as the phenomenon of craving. And so this is what makes alcoholics unique from other people. Other people cannot understand this abnormal reaction, this phenomenon of craving. Another thing that should be noted is as far as the big book is concerned, a craving occurs when you put a substance into your body. Oftentimes I will hear people in early sobriety say that they're dealing with cravings. However, that is not the case as far as AA is concerned. If you've been abstinent for 30 days or 90 days, whatever it may be, and you find yourself having a desire to drink that is very strong, what you're dealing with is the mental obsession rather than the phenomenon of craving that is solely the result of putting a substance in your body and having the allergic reaction to it. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but once allergic, always allergic. This point cannot be stressed enough. You'll hear things about solution and recovery and recovered in in the rooms of AA and in, in the big book. And what do you mean by that is that the have overcome the mental obsession to drink once they are abstinent. They are not referring to having done away with this allergy. That will be with us for the rest of our life. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves. If they are to recreate their lives, if any feel that as psychiatrists directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line, see the tragedies and despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments, and the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. We feel, after many years of experience, that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. So this frothy emotional appeal that seldom suffices. I never understood that line when I first read this, but then it was explained to me that what they mean by that is nobody can appeal to your emotions um, and convince you to put down the drink and the drug. Um, In my personal life, you know, I've I've had um, significant others beg me to stop my mother cry and beg me to to get the help that I so desperately needed. And um, in the heat of the moment, um, all I could think at the time was, you know, when are they going to shut up so I can get out of here and, and get my next drink or my next drug?
Then it goes on to talk about all the pain and suffering that alcoholism causes in the family life and in the personal life. Um, Many of us probably have scores of experience with that. And it's that suffering exactly that is the the message of uh, depth and weight for me. You know, it's it's not only is this disease going to kill me if I continue to drink like I've been drinking, but the suffering will never go away and it'll spread to everybody that I care about unless I can find a power greater than myself um, to put my, my trust in. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while the admitted is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. In my opinion, this is maybe one of the most important paragraphs in the entire book because it really breaks down what we suffer from. Now, now it says that we essentially drink because we like the effect produced by alcohol. And that's true. It, uh, it was a solution of ours for a very long time and it worked great for a long time. Um, unfortunately, if you find yourself um, seeking recovery, chances are it's not working so well for you anymore. And the sensation caused by alcohol is elusive. Elusive means just out of reach. You're always chasing it but can never quite get your hand on it. And while the admitted is injurious, they cannot after time differentiate the true from the false. Sure, we know. We know that it's bad for us. We know that it hurts us and messes up our life. But we lie to ourselves and we don't even know we're lying. And so we can rationalize it in a million different ways, some of which may make some sense, maybe not so much some of the other excuses. But regardless, we're going to believe them because at the end of the day, that's what we want to do. Their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Uh, This one rings especially true if you started your drinking career young. Uh, Me personally, I started to get consequences from my my drinking early on in my life. You know, I was still a teenager. And so these these consequences came, came to be like normal routine for me. You know, it wasn't a... It wasn't something where like I'd get arrested or wreck a car or get charged with a DWI and then I would reevaluate my life and look at my drinking. No, that was just a Tuesday and, and, and that's how it had been for, for most of my life. So nothing was, was uh, out of order there. But here's where it gets really good. 
So it says, they are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Now, it it says here, unless they can again experience, right? So what that's implying is that we're getting restless, irritable, and discontent when we're sober, when we're when we are abstinent and not drinking. Um, and so we get this tightness, if you will. You, we feel restless. We can't. We uh, we're not happy with where we're at. We're angry, um, miserable. You you know, there's so many words you can use to describe this. But but all in all, we get re- restless, irritable, and discontent, and we start to obsess over sense of ease and comfort. And so when we deal with the mental obsession. Um, in addiction and alcoholism, um, I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that that means that they're sitting there and they cannot stop thinking about taking a drink or getting high, whatever that looks like for you. Um, and I'm and I'm sure that we've experienced this before, um, but that's that's really that doesn't do it justice. See, it's we obsess over the sense of ease and comfort. From the way we're feeling. We cannot stand the way that we feel and we seek to change the way we feel. And we don't always do this with alcohol, at least not at first. Um, shopping, uh, overworking, food, exercise, sex, attention. These are all things that can give us a sense of ease and comfort when we're feeling restless, irritable, and discontent. Um, but the problem is those those solutions do, are temporary and they don't last long. And so these these negative feelings come back up over and over again, and we just we just tire out and we can't keep them at bay until eventually we get frustrated and we go back to the old faithful solution. We take a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. Right? He's doing it. Why can't I do it? But then once we've we've taken those drinks, once we've succumbed to the desire, then the phenomenon of craving develops. So here we have the allergic reaction that we talked about earlier. And so because we have a body that can't process alcohol, once the allergy has uh, taken a hold of us, um, we can no longer control and we cannot stop. So we pass through the well-known stages of a spree. I know me and my peers tend to call this going on a run nowadays. Um, and then we emerge remorseful on the other side, usually because we've gotten some kind of consequence. Whether it's just everybody's pissed off at us or if it's legal trouble or whatnot, um, we normally don't want to take a look at our drinking unless some sort of consequence gets us. And then once we're, on, once we're on the other side of it, once we're temporarily separated from alcohol on the other side of the consequence, whether it be court-ordered rehab, whether it be jail, whether it be family doing an intervention, we, we, uh, we emerge with the firm resolution not to drink again. Um, and, and the thing that is crazy about these firm resolutions is, you know, in the moment when we're saying, I'm never going to drink again, we 100% mean it. You know, we're telling the truth. It's it's not that we're just uh, 
lying and keeping this uh this idea that we're going to drink in our back pocket no we really swear it off forever but the problem is is this is repeated over and over again unless we can experience an entire psychic change so what happens is we we get restless irritable and discontent and then we get a fleeting thought once once we have this fleeting thought if we don't do something with it um, and it just sits, it starts to fester, and it can turn into a full-blown mental obsession where we cannot stop thinking about how bad we feel and how we cannot stop thinking about ease and comfort and how can I change the way that I feel right now. Now, if I, if I slip into this mental obsession, um, oftentimes past the point of no return already, um, it's very rare that I've returned from that. It is possible, but it's, it's not easy. Once I'm there, it's only a matter of time before I drink. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And once I take that, that first drink, now we're living in the allergy. Phenomenon of craving develops. We go for the run until we hit the wall. We hit the consequences and we emerge with the firm resolution. And that goes round and round and round and round. Unless we can have a psychic change. And this psychic change is exactly what the steps promise us. So here's the thing. This is, this is something that blew my mind when it first was explained to me. I had always associated being restless, irritable, and discontent with being sober. And so when I first came into AA and he said, you know, you need to do the steps if you want to be sober... I had a hard time bringing myself to do that because if to be sober is to be miserable, then why would I want to do the steps? Because I'm just going to end up being miserable. What I did not realize was the steps really didn't have all that much to do with being sober. Granted, being sober is the requirement to start the journey, but the steps are about living life, finding a purpose and, and having your life take on a new meaning. And so once that has fully manifested in your life, what it does is it removes that restless, irritable and that discontent feeling that always bubbles up. Sometimes it does it really easily and other times you got to work extra hard at it. However, one, when done correctly, when these feelings disappear, there is no fleeting thought and no obsession. And thus the whole cycle is unnecessary. And it's because of this that it works. And that gave me great hope, knowing that I not only didn't have to be miserable but i could be sober and 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 relatively happy that that was the best deal in town as far as i'm concerned